suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Hello and welcome back. Yes, the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast at our new time, Monday nights. If you're in the chat room, eventually say hello. We'll try and incorporate your comments. I'm Trevor. With me, as always, from regional Queensland, Scott the Velvet Glove. How are you, Scott? Not too bad, Trevor. I hope everyone's well, but I'm starting to look with uh, concern over the tropical cyclone that's on its way. And it's looking like it's, well, the centre of the prediction is it's going to actually cross over at Townsville. The most northerly part of it is it's still predicted to hit Innisvale at the north or Airly Beach in the south. Mm. Now, I would like it to be further north from where I'm sitting right now because that will reduce the rain and everything else which is going to come. And it could actually also cock up my travel plans for Thursday afternoon. So, yeah. so I'm, down to, I'm down to Brisbane next weekend. So yeah, yeah. Mm. Book an earlier flight if you can, Scott. I yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's always a possibility. Yeah. Mm. Good luck mm-hmm. dodging that. So yeah. yeah, it's been a stinker in Brisbane today. Oh god, yeah. Ugh, 38, 39 degrees, depending on where you are. And I'm in air conditioned comfort at the moment. Looking forward to chatting with you, Scott, about what's going on in the world and we'll try and solve a few problems one by one. Let's start with, well, what's on the agenda, dear listener? We're going to talk about Australian Open tennis, no Russian flags, you might have noticed, a little bit on housing, a fair bit on Trump and trying to explain the Trump phenomena because, let's face it, that's starting to get some momentum and traction and we'll all be talking about Trump over the next 12 months or at least nine months so we need to really understand Donald Trump a little bit about Taiwan and China and maybe Yemen finish up with the Lord's Prayer and Stephanie Rice depending how we go so (laughs) land and hard bottom says it's minus 15 in Beijing yeah so I think he's actually trying to actually pay analysts there by saying look at me I'm up here in the cold and you're down there in the heat Yes. So good on you, Landon. Now, Scott, you been watching the tennis at all? No, I don't really watch any sports. <laughs> yeah. You know, I do watch a little bit of rugby when it's on, but I haven't, I don't watch, I, I do watch the rugby union, not the rugby league. So, yeah. I was watching a little bit just the other night and Medvedev was playing. He's Russian. And mm. on the screen where they've got their name and the score and beside their name is usually their flag of their country. But in Medvedev's case, being Russian, no flag. So at the Australian Open, they've decided that they're not going to show the flag of any Russian or Belarusian players. And Scott, well, got any opinion on that? I can understand where it's coming from because they, they've taken the view that Russia's invasion of Ukraine was completely unprovoked and everything else, so they had to, they had to take a stand against it. 
I'm not a big fan of stands and that sort of stuff on those sorts of things because I think to myself it's only sport, so they've just got to deal with it. <sighs> it is what it is. It looks like it's a fairly muted approach by the Tennis Australia, but it is something that they could do to effectively protest against um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But it wasn't, you know, it's not really barring the players from competing or anything else. I gather they can still take their prize money back to Russia, can Mm -hmm. they? Yeah. Yeah. So it's no big deal then. It's just... Mm. It is what it is. It's it's just it's just blocking the national identity of the country and that sort of stuff that they've brought. The problem with these things is once you do it once, you've got to be consistent in applying it. Yeah, so you're going to say that they should remove the American flag, are you? Well, I was thinking Israel. I mean, what's what are they saying here? If you invade another country, then we're not going to let you have your flag of your athletes. So, yeah. you know... Israel is, isn't is, is really Israel not invaded. No, not really. The Gaza, they, they are actually trying to. They are actually trying to keep the, what is currently in Israel's borders under control. Now, you that, know that's what Russia would say. Yeah, well, that's what <laughs> Russia would say. But Ukraine has been an independent state since 1989. Yeah. It's just one of those. Yeah. Here's my point. Do you agree with the point, though, that if you're going to have laws, yeah, you've got to they have should apply everybody. equally yeah, exactly. to everybody? Exactly. So, so you would what have is should... the law? If you've invaded another country, you athletes, you know, no flag. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what you've then actually got to decide, has, Pal- has Israel actually invaded another country? Mm. Not really, because it is, it is part of Israel. However, mm. it is also a border of a potential... Palestinian state. Mm. Now, if it actually becomes an official Palestinian state, then Israel has clearly invaded them. So that is something that I do think that they're going to have to look at and actually get it right. Okay. But I guess the rationale is if a country does something really bad, Mm. then we're going to punish that country Mm -hmm. by not allowing their athletes to use the flag. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, arguably even if you don't think it's an invasion as such. What Israel's yeah. done is really bad. Oh, no, it is. It is, it is terrible. You know, yeah. I have never defended Israel. I've only yeah. that they do have the right to defend themselves. But so I'll, would you be happy if they also decided, okay, no Israeli flags for Israeli yeah, tennis players? Really You'd be happy with that? You, do you think that would be a fair thing, that if they're going to have it for Ukrainian and Belarusian players, do you think just as a matter of equality and consistency, that that should be what they would do? Yeah, would have thought so. Okay, there we are. Yeah. We're in agreement on something, Scott. Yeah, I know. We agree on some things occasionally. Yeah. yeah. It's one of those things. I have never defended Israel. You know, it's... Mm. I'm not saying you are. No, just... but, you know, according to what's his name, the guy that actually sent me that yeah. message last week, Andrew, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, noisy you Andrew. Know, it's one of those things. I have never actually defended Israel. I have always said that a terrible, terrible mistake was made in 1947. Mm. And, you know, we've got to live with that now. It's one mm. of those things. And I did actually ask the question. It really wouldn't worry me if we actually created a state of Israel in Australia that came part of the Commonwealth of Australia. But it was just one of those things. I don't think mm. that you'd ever be able to get that uh, across from uh, Gina Reinhardt or anything like that. She'd really 
crack the shits about that, but it is what it is. Mm. You know? Landon's in the chat room. Landon, what do you reckon, Landon? If it's good enough for Ukraine and Belarus, then Israel and Israeli athletes, I'm keen to know, Mr. Hardbottom, what your hard opinion might be on this one. <laughs> are you going to live up to your name or not, Landon, or are you just going to be, you know, well, Mr. Soft, probably, Mr. Soft something? Right? I think he'll probably back Israel. But anyway, yeah. We'll see time. what he says, yeah. I did a quick Google before it started, Scott, just to check on whether any other sports had followed a similar practice. And what I found was that with the Olympics in Paris, that similar thing, Russian and Belarusian athletes won't be able to represent their nations. They'll be sort of neutral athletes. And that's been decided by the International Olympic Committee. And so there was a, a poll in the UK by the YouGov in UK about whether UK citizens agreed with this. And, okay, the responses overall, actually, I think I can put this up on the screen for you, Scott. So let me just find this one here. There it is. So should be allowed to compete in their own national teams. That's what 14% of UK people think. Should be allowed to compete but only as neutral athletes. 34% think that. Shouldn't be allowed to compete at all was 33% and I don't know of 19. So um, that was the, the figures. Interestingly, on age, the older demographic was more likely to say should not be allowed to compete at all. So they were the ones with the sort of harder opinions about that. The older you were, the more likely you were to say that Ukrainian, Russian and Belarusian athletes shouldn't be allowed to compete at all. So, Well, I just think to myself, if you actually, mm, mm. that would probably be a fairer system if you're going to actually block them from doing anything and you shouldn't allow them to compete. You know, it's... it's you it's think that's those, fairer? Well, I think it is because it's just, well, it's, it's like, you know, the... They're just the, innocent. They're, they're, yeah, they okay. Just innocent. They might be objectors to the whole I know situation. that. They could well be, but then they're, they're part of the country and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's exactly the same thing that is being done, that was done to the Springboks and everything else. We didn't allow them to compete internationally because we were we found their whole racist system repugnant, and mm. I agreed wholeheartedly with that. It's one of those things we've actually got to actually. So, my my question for the Olympic Committee would be: Is it really that bad that Russia has invaded Ukraine? And if it is, then I think we should actually back up the forty seven percent and not allow them to compete at all. But then at the same time, look around the world and what countries are doing to other countries. Yeah, so I know. Is anybody doing anything as bad around well, the world? Because if you're going to start doing it to one country you're going to for one reason, you have yeah, to look at them all. Hmm. And, and then, you know, we, you probably... We're going to reach probably, the point where we're not going to have many people able well, to compete you, if we're going to start have, banning individual athletes because their countries have bombed somebody. You're probably going to end up that you'd only have the Olympics involving, well, Europe except for the United Kingdom, the Western Europe, and, well, through the through to the East and that sort of stuff, you'd have those sorts of countries. You'd have most of Africa 
possibly not the north of Africa and that type of thing because they have been involved in some pretty bad stuff. In the Middle East, you'd have to look at there and that sort of stuff. You'd actually say, well, we shouldn't allow them. You wouldn't have it's Australia. Just, I mean, if you looked at what we've been involved with. with yeah, um, I know, because, we, you know, we invaded Iraq and everything yeah. else. Yeah. So, I mean, the whole idea of the Olympics, to some extent, is a gathering of people from all over the world converging in one place in friendly competition. Hmm. It sort of defeats the purpose if you're going to start bringing politics into it, I think. So, well, it's one of those things. You've actually got to decide where you're going to have your politics, don't you? Hmm. You know? And not on the sporting field. Please. Well, I can appreciate that, but then would you allow? Would you have allowed the Springboks to compete at the time that their country was involved in racist politics? Yeah, good question. And good question. If it was the Olympics, it's like everybody's supposed to be there. Then I'd say yes. But you know, the Springboks were just in a a sport which was between, what, half a dozen different countries. Yeah, exactly. It's one yeah. of those things. It was pretty small and that sort of stuff. So Australia could take its principal stand and that sort of thing and say, no, we're not mm. going to allow it. Mm. You know, it's it's one of those things. I I, I don't know where I'd draw the line. You know, and mm. Landon's actually saying if we're being consistent, then the US flag should be missing from a few international competitions. True, he's right there, you know. Mm. If we are being consistent, we've got to actually keep the US out. Mm. You know, it's one of those things. I'm not sure where you draw the line, though. Mm. Right. Watley's joined. He's late again. But all right. So that was flags of Russians and Belarusians at the tennis and the Olympics. Scott, a bit on housing came across. This came via an article I saw in Crikey, which referred to a report by Mary Azizi. And looking at housing... And let me just bring up, again, one of these slides on this one. So um, looking at the screen, dear listener, is a chart. There's a blue line that's just a slow growth. There's a red line that accelerates quickly. The blue line is average weekly earnings and the orangey red line is house prices. And that sort of is an indication of how the house prices have accelerated beyond how wages have accelerated. And, and that uh, growth in it was around about 2001, was it? That's when it really started to take off. Yeah. And that was ridiculous because that was also the time that the Howard government actually took away the old way of calculating capital gains tax and then did a 50% discount on it. Mm. So since the 1990s, house prices have risen from two and a half times annual household income to over six times today. Mm. So I can remember, dear listener, when my wife and I, I was, we weren't even married, we weren't even engaged, but she bought a house on a teacher's wage. I think the teacher's wage was maybe 18000 20000 and the workers' cottage in Newmarket, right on the train line, was like forty, forty-five thousand. maybe it was fifty, something like that. Um, pretty much the sort of two and a half times her wage. And, you know, if the medium wage now is 80000 there's no way you can buy something like that for 200000 It just doesn't exist. No. So still running to boomers who say these young people today, they want everything fancy. 
they want the best house. And I just say to them, they'd buy a shitbox if it was available, a small worker's cottage. They're just not there. So, so anyway, that was that statistic in this report. And the other interesting part of this report was looking at what it's costing us. might be hard to read on that screen, but the cost of the tax concessions. So negative gearing deductions and the capital gains tax exemption, remembering that capital gains is a 50% discount. So in 2021-2022, Scott, is the negative... The, is that the actual ne negative gearing tax deduction that the people are claiming or is that the... That, that's what it's costing the government in lost revenue by allowing negative gearing deductions. Mm. And in 2021-2022, it was $3.7 billion and the capital gains tax was $4.7 billion. And looking at the next year, so 2023 to 2024, the cost to the government of providing negative gearing deductions is $6.6 billion, and the capital gains tax is $4.7 billion. So those two things together are worth more than $10 billion a year to the budget, Scott. Yeah. It's one of those things, you know, negative gearing is a result of interest charges and all that sort of stuff. Now, the interest rates have been rising, mm -hmm. so that's going to result in higher losses for rental properties. So that will result in a larger amount of government, government missing out on revenue. Yeah. So as... As prices have increased, gains have in increased, you're right, the government is foregoing even more tax revenue as a result of the boom that's effectively taken place. Mm -hmm. so, so we're at the point where the negative gearing and the capital gains tax is, is costing the budget $11 billion a year. Scott, I always think of things in terms of submarines because it's hard to keep track of billions and what they're actually worth. So, you know, you could uh, you could buy 11 Japanese submarines for this. Yeah, well, the Jap ones, let's say they were one and a half. Um, okay. Well, then you yeah. buy seven yeah. of them. Yeah, we could buy six or seven hmm. Japanese subs. And for, for the cost of one year of negative gearing and CGT deductions, hmm. of course, we'd only get one-fifth of an American sub, but that's hmm. a different matter altogether. Just goes to show, like, we, we could have our subs and be done with it for one year of forsaking these sorts of rorts. So it's a huge hit to the budget. And I hadn't seen those figures before, but there we are. So link in the show notes to the report and the source for that projected cost. So the one I'm just mentioning now of $11 billion, that comes from the Parliamentary Budget Office. So that's the source of where it comes from. So yeah, okay, that's housing. That's the cost to Australia's budget. Nobody, of course, is going to be going to do anything about it because no. we're now locked into this disastrous system. But We are hooked on it. You yep. know, as a country, we are hooked on real estate investment. Yeah. Now, I know I've bought a couple of rental properties and all that sort of stuff, but I can mm. afford it, so I've just bought them. Mm. And, you know, if they do go up in value, well and true, that'll be great for me. But right now mm. I'm, just, I'm just counting the rent. Mm. Yeah, I'm probably going to make more money out of the place at South Ripley than I will at, up here in Mackay. But anyway, it is mm. what it is. 
John in the chat room says, I'm against negative gearing, but that doesn't sound much compared to the total economy. I reckon it's a fair whack. What do you mean you're going to look at, John? You could buy a lot of social housing for that. Yeah, exactly. And that would actually then take the heat out of the property market because you'd you'd be reducing demand for it. Mm. So I just think that what you've actually got to look at there is it's not a... And in part of the total economy that is quite small, but I can't imagine another tax deduction costing us that much. Mm. Yeah. All right. That was housing. Scott, I'd like to talk about Donald Trump. And we mentioned last week, I think so this it was. is probably going to take us about half an hour, isn't it? Well, I don't know. See how we go. Ron DeSantis has dropped out of the race. Yes, he dropped out. So I had the Iowa caucus and hmm. really it's now pretty much down to just Trump and Nikki Haley and hmm. she's just, it's only a matter of time because Trump's clearly going to win. So um, it's hard to imagine any other result. Just the Iowa caucus really confirmed that Trump is going to win. Hmm. But we mentioned last week about how the evangelical pastors were regretting their deal with Donald Trump mm. and that that people had kind of they'd lost control of their flock, if you like, to Trump who had taken over. So just this is something that I'm going to play a clip from Donald Trump's Truth Social account. <laughs> so this is something that he's played and also gets played at some of his rallies. Rallies. Thank you. Mm. That's the word, Scott. Yeah. I don't know if we can play the whole two minutes of it, or two minutes 40, but we'll see how we go. The, the audio isn't fantastic, but that's just the way it's come. It's meant to have this scratchy sound in the back of it. Hopefully you can hear it okay. Well, anyway, have a listen to some of this. If you've got a – have a bucket close by in case you feel ill, is all I'd say. And on June 14, 1946, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker, so God gave us Trump. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, fix this country, work all day, fight the Marxists, eat supper, then go to the Oval Office and stay past midnight at a meeting of the heads of state, so God made Trump. I need somebody with arms, strong enough to rustle the deep state, and yet gentle enough to deliver his own grandchild. I like that bit. Strong enough to wrestle with the deep state, yet soft and gentle enough to deliver his own grandchild. Was he claiming to have delivered his own grandchild at some point? I I have heard this before, and I just thought to myself, maybe he is claiming that. I must. Well, somebody's claiming he did. Anyway, I'll keep going with it. To ruffle the feathers, tame cantankerous World Economic Forum, come home hungry, have to wait until the first lady is done with lunch with friends, then tell the ladies to be sure and come back real soon, and mean it. So God gave us. That was a little serious. <laughs> wait for the first lady to have lunch, and then welcome her friends back another time, and mean it in all seriousness. And this isn't a. This wasn't done ironically. This was done as as a fawning sort of. Thing it's a lot of shit, isn't it? It's it's a strange clip. I'll keep going. I need somebody who can shape an axe but wield a sword, who 
had the courage to step foot in North Korea, who can make money from the tar of the sand, turn liquid to gold, who understands the difference between tariffs and inflation, will finish his 40-hour week by Tuesday noon, but then put in another 72 hours. So God made Trump. God had to have somebody willing to go into the den of vipers, call out the fake news for their tongues as sharp as a serpent's. The poison of vipers is on their lips, and yet stop. So oh, that'll do. There's another minute or so of it, but you get the you get the flavour of. I think that was. Uh, it sounds very much like a video and that sort of stuff that came out many many years ago. It was something, and God made farmers, wasn't it? I don't know. Yeah. But it's a real sort of deification of of Donald Trump. Oh, uh, God, yeah. As, as sort of a saviour figure. Yeah. So, um, so that came associated with an article I was reading in the New York Times. And I'll just read some excerpts from that article. So, Trump, his family and his supporters have been more than willing to claim that Trump is ordained by God for a special mission to restore America as a Christian nation. And in recent weeks, the former president posted a video called God Made Trump, and he screened it at campaign rallies. And actually, the people who make it, made it was, it was created by Dilly Mean Team, described by Ken Bessinger of The Times as an organised collective of video producers who call themselves Trump's online war machine. Anyway, they're the guys who created it. So Trump's, according to this article, Trump's evolution into a Jesus-like figure for some, but not all white evangelicals, began soon after he began his first presidential campaign. And there's a guy, a David P. Gushy, professor of Christian ethics at Mercer University, who explained that some of Trump's Christian followers do appear to have grown to see him as a kind of religious figure. He is a saviour. I think it began with the sense that he was uniquely committed to saving them from their foes. Liberals, Democrats, elites, seculars, illegal immigrants, etc., and saving America from all that threatens it. In this sense, Gushy continued, a saviour does not have to be a good person, but just needs to fulfil his divinely appointed role. Trump is seen by many as actually having done so while president. This is an idea, Scott, that I hadn't really sort of paid attention to before, because you you sort of look at it and you go, how can these Christians support this guy? Okay, they did a deal. Get rid of Roe v. Wade and we'll do these other things for you. But the other mm. part of that is that, you know, a sort of a saviour in a biblical sense doesn't have to be a good person, just needs to fulfil his divinely appointed role. And this view is particularly strong in the Pentecostal wing of the conservative Christian world. He's sometimes viewed there as an anointed leader sent by God. And anointed here means set apart, and especially equipped by God for a holy task. And sometimes the most unlikely people got anointed by God in the Bible. So Trump's unlikeliness for the role is actually evidence in favour that he's performing the role. And they go on to talk about... Um, let me just see here. Oh, there's a particular character. Um, uh, yes. So uh, white evangelicals refer not to Jesus but to the Persian king Cyrus from the book of Isaiah in 
the Hebrew Bible. In that story, Cyrus is the model of an ungodly king who nonetheless frees a group of Jews who are held captive in in Babylon. So sort of trumps the fact that he is so unsavoury, leads even more evidence for these people that he is the real saviour because (laughs) in their biblical interpretations, that's quite appropriate that the most unlikely people perform roles anointed by God. And that's actually a good thing. Wow. I think they're actually concentrating far too much on the Old Testament there. (laughs) You know. But as a means of justifying themselves. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Mm. Um, Yeah. Now. Because, you know, I would have thought that if you're a Christian and that sort of stuff, you should have more of an emphasis on the New Testament than you Mm. would on the Old Testament, but apparently not. Hmm. So, now there's an important idea here that I've just got to get to. So there's a guy, Jim Guth, political scientist at Furman University, an expert on the role of religion in politics, apparently. And he says, white evangelicals are invariably the most populist. And by populist, he means more likely to favour strong leadership, to distrust government, to see the country on the wrong track, and to think that the majority should always rule. And Guth found that another trait of political populists is the willingness to ignore democratic civility. He says, we, conduct, we constructed a rough politics score from the following items, whether protesters deserve what they get if they hurt in demonstrating, whether the country would be better off if it got rid of rotten apples, and whether people are too sensitive about political discourse. And what they found was that with evangelical affiliation, evangelical identity and biblical literalism predicts that you'll agree with those assertions, those, that rough politics. So the evangelicals like that sort of strong man, better off without those rotten apples, don't be so sensitive kind of attitudes. And, and what he goes on to say is that essentially... Not only were the evangelical leaders doing a deal with Trump about Roe v. Wade, but it actually just aligned with evangelicals. Trump aligns with evangelicals in that characteristic of wanting a strong man who, who gets rid of rotten apples and believes the majority should rule over the minority. So Ooh. there was... There's that sort of characteristic trait of evangelicals, which, let's face it, is a pretty ugly trait. And, incredibly um, ugly. And he's essentially saying that when you're studying religious groups, you'll find that trait, all those traits overrepresentative in evangelicals. And so Trump is actually a psychological match for these people. It's not just cutting a deal for Roe v. Wade and putting up with his shit like they actually like that shit because it matches up with their psychological profile their view of the world yeah so so there you go add that to your kit bag of understanding of the trump phenomena in american politics yeah um and and really saying in that article there's no scope in the evangelical movement 
to move towards a softer line, that any leaders who have tried to do it have basically been run out of town, run out of the evangelical um, sort of world, and it's just got uh, harder and harder in those populist policies, is what he's saying in that article. So anyway, I thought that was an interesting one, and makes all sense to you, Scott. Yeah, it does. Mm. Um, I just hope that I hope that it continues. That ever since Roe v. Wade was overturned, and that sort of stuff we've seen in the states, and that sort of stuff, that the number of Republicans being elected to those state legislatures has actually been reduced. Mm-hmm. Now, one would hope that that continues under the federals and all that sort of stuff, and maybe Biden will actually win a thumping majority of the of the what's it called the well whatever it's, wh- wh- whoever selects the president um, yeah. the electoral college. Yep. I hope that he does, but I'm not convinced that he will. Mm. You know. From from the vantage from here in Australia, I don't think it makes any difference whether Trump wins or Biden wins. Like, in fact, we're probably, as I said before, Trump sort of is less likely to get involved in in sort of wars. Yeah, I agree. You know, because he's, he he's more to... likely to pull out of stuff and well, less likely I, I, to. I think he'll actually because he he did actually. When they actually used cruise missiles against Syria and that sort of stuff, he had Xi Jinping was over visiting him, mm. and he said he actually gloated to him. He says, "Oh, you know, we've just we've just dispensed with those Syrians by using our cruise missiles." So I think that would actually be something that would appeal to him. He would actually mm. use those sorts of things. I don't see him putting boots on the ground or anything else. Mm. Just a. The odd assassination I, here or there. Uh, well, he'd, like that. he'd be up for that. I think he did that with a yeah, that an Iraqi really general or something like that, or an Iranian general or something like that. Yeah, yeah there was probably mm. that that was killed by a predator drone and that sort of stuff. But but I think overall, Scott, like he'll cancel AUKUS for sure. Yeah, for just, sure. And that's a good thing for us. But yeah. if if you're looking at just policies, what policy can you think of that Trump would promote? that affects the rest of the world. Oh, I think you leave Ukraine on its own. Yeah. You know, I, don't even, I don't even think that he would have the balls to actually stand up to Vladimir Putin and actually say to him, look, you can keep Donetsk, but you've got mm-hmm. to actually stay out of the rest of Ukraine. I think he'd just walk away entirely and just leave Ukraine to fend for itself, in which case Ukraine would collapse. Yeah. But, I mean, of course... You know, I can't really list any stated policies of Donald Trump and I wouldn't bother learning them because whatever he states his policy is... It's all bullshit. No guarantee that's what he's going to do. So you just look at his past practice and and think, well, he's probably going to do pretty much the same. And really, other than maybe being less inclined to be involved in wars, the actual day-to-day running of the country, ignoring all of the crazy personal shit... But just the way the country functioned, was it? Is it any that much different? Well, it wise? depends. It depends on actually what he actually does on that. I can't think what it's called, but the Republicans do actually have a book and that sort of stuff that they've actually put together about what what a first day Trump two will look like. Mm. And they've actually gone through and actually said that they're going to sack the public servants, and they're going to move into the from the. Yeah, Jobs he says that, but a lot of, of the, stuff. Yeah, 
you know, he's going to sack them and get in, put in sycophants, which would mm. be ridiculous if they actually did that. Mm. Now, here's I honestly a, believe that we would have to be very concerned about that. Mm. Here's a clip from my podcast, which has, now what's this guy called? Green, <laughs> Greenwald. This um, is something from Landon Hardbottom. He says, yeah. Putin has the Trump kiss tape. Trump will do whatever he's told to do. <laughs> Could be anyway. the case. Yeah. Could, could be the case. So this is uh, Glenn Greenwald from System Update Podcast. This is talking about power and whether there's any difference between Trump. It's an interesting idea of why. I'll play it. I think this is quite instructive. Have a listen to this, Scott. Just to, to, to close this point about the dynamic of the race and the fact that the establishment in Washington is so clearly, enthusiastically supportive of Nikki Haley. And when I asked Congressman Douglas that, I think he gave an interesting answer, which is absolutely right, that she represents business as usual, that there will be very little change to the way things are done in Washington if she's elected or if Joe Biden is reelected. That's what they look for more than anything. That's the reason they found so Trump threatening, Trump so threatening, not because of any one particular view he expressed or policy he advocated, although I think secondarily it became about that as well. I just think in general, he represented this threat to continuity, this just subversive energy that threatened to shake up their very comfortable game. Washington is where their power and wealth comes from. They're very, very protective of that. And the person who sits nominally, at least at the top of that pyramid, who doles out enormous amounts of opportunities and contracts, for that person to be overtly hostile to sectors of the establishment is their biggest fear, way more than which party wins or loses, which ideology prevails. And Trump was such an outsider in terms of Washington. He had never occupied political office before. They just feared the fact that he didn't rely on their standard group of lobbyists. They saw the writing on the wall that their normal consultants and others who were careerists would be out of power. It was the only time Trump's election was in the last 25 years that Nikki ha that that Victoria Newland did not occupy some important and influential foreign policy position. She was there in the Clinton administration. She then served as Dick Cheney's top foreign policy advisor throughout the Bush administration. She then became the ambassador to NATO when NATO was recklessly expanding eastward in a way that was threatening Russia. She then began running important parts of the State Department under Hillary Clinton and then was put in charge of Ukraine under John Kerry. Only when Trump was president for four years, she was out. Biden gets reelected. She's right back in. Now she's been promoted once again to the highest level of the State Department. So just in, in Victoria Nuland, you see the point I'm emphasizing, which is that these people thrive and prosper and maintain power no matter the outcome of political elections as long as both parties nominate somebody who plays the game. And Nikki Haley is clearly somebody who, as much as any politician I've ever seen, is more than willing to play whatever game she's told to play in order to benefit herself. She's an absolute empty vessel, a puppet who believes in nothing. I thought that was a good example, the Victoria Newland one, where didn't matter, Republican or Democrat, she gets a job, gets a role, and it's only when Trump's in that she doesn't. And there'd be lots of people like that who suddenly lose their their power. So Yeah, for sure. It's just 
it is one of those things that is one area that you can actually point to Trump and actually say, well, that would be a good thing because you wouldn't have this hawkish sort of NATO expansionism and everything else. That's only one thing. Mm. You know, the rest of it is a concern. You know, it's it's like, you know, I think you're looking for Republican policies that don't exist. Mm. Because, you know, they, you know, and he said, you know, oh, she's an empty vessel. Well, that could be argued about any Republican. They are all empty vessels. They haven't actually got any, they haven't actually got anything that they actually hang their hat on or anything like this. Now, you know, Reagan, who I did disagree with a hell of a lot, you could mm. actually at least hang his hat on something and say, well, this is what he actually believes and this is mm. what he's going to do. This current lot, I don't think you'd actually say the same thing. Mm. You know, mm. it's anyway. It's an interesting idea that that yeah. the sort of the establishment is particularly keen for Nikki Haley over Donald Trump because it's a continuation of of power for a lot of people who who expect to use power irrespective of whether Democrats or Republicans win. Mm. So yeah, it's like one of those things. Like you know. <laughs> As bad as George W. Bush's presidency was, at least it was something that you could hang your head on and say, well, I actually agree with that. Mm. Or I disagree with most of what he's saying, but there's a few things that do come up you think just, okay, he's got us there, you know. But it's just one of those things with this idiot, I just don't think we're going to get anything that any of us could agree on. Mm. Anyway. Except, you know, you're probably going to be very happy if he does actually cancel all this. I'd be delighted. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just the biggest. You've got, to remember, you've got to remember that AUKUS stands for Australia, UK, and US. Mm. So the UK could still actually sell us some nuclear submarines from that. Well, I, I, the whole deal would then be done, would be over, because it relies so much on the US as part of the whole shebang. Mm. It, could, it couldn't just. Well, I think that I think that Australia would be waiting until the twenty forties for our next lot of submarines. Yeah, we're never going to get them. So just be, we just should... well, we'd have to we'd have to wait until the UK was ready to produce them and that sort of stuff. Then we end up buying them from there. Yeah, yeah. And we've still not... got to work out what the hell we're going to do with the spent fuel and everything else that comes from them. Because mm. the UK hasn't actually decommissioned any of their submarines that they've ever had. I think they're just sitting in a dock somewhere. Yeah, they are rusting away. Yeah, they're what, rusting they're away. They're, they're keeping the they're keeping the power and everything on them and that sort of stuff, so they don't actually blow up. Mm. But it's just one of those things. It's they haven't worked out how to safely dispose of the nuclear reactors. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, Trump's also got uh, news caught by the balls. So according to an article from Crikey, with Lachlan in charge, they're sort of uh, recognizing that their audience that they want to try and keep are Trump lovers and therefore they have to comply with Trump demands. And DeSantis, Ron DeSantis, accused Fox of just being Trump's Praetorian guard and they, he said they don't hold Trump accountable because they're worried about losing viewers and they don't want to have their ratings go down. And his complaint followed Fox's pathetic surrender to Trump earlier in the week by agreeing to a live town hall discussion at a time and in a format demanded by the former president. 
despite the official Republican debate on CNN. So basically they agreed to Trump's terms and they're rolling over and kowtowing to Trump because he controls their audience. So just like the evangelical pastors, News Corp have created a monster that now controls their flock and they're having to now do his bidding. So well, one would hope that the lawsuits and everything like that against against Fox News is actually going to actually control their behaviour next time when the election needs to be called. Yes, they won't be doing the same thing in terms of the vote counting, but there's all the soft sort of stuff of assisting Trump along the way is what they'll be doing. Mm. So, yeah. Yep. Just away from Trump now, UK poll. So there was a YouGov survey, 14,000 people extrapolating the results and predicts that Conservatives will retain only 169 seats, which is 196 fewer than they hold at the moment. Then Labor would take 385, so um, a big wipeout of the Conservatives in the UK seems all but certain. Scott? Yeah, it does. Mm. We're just going to wait and see, you know, because... Like Joe was saying last week, that there's hope that the Liberal Democrats will end up with a balance of power, but it doesn't sound like it. Mm. Yep. Hey, yeah. Scott, you should... You know I did that one on the book by Yasha Monk about yeah. identity politics. So Yasha yeah, Monk has a podcast, and I was just listening to it today. I'm just going to try and find you the name of it. It's called The Good Fight, and he just did an episode on Taiwan, interviewed a guy who's some university professor, I think, or something like that in Taiwan. So anyway, gave a good background of, of, of Taiwan's history and where they're at in terms of the recent elections. So, um, so you should listen to that because I know you're keen on visiting Taiwan at some stage in the near okay, future. Is that Albert Wu, Taiwan's yeah. past and present? Yeah, that's it. So have a look at that. That was an interesting one. In the John Menadue blog, there was an article by Wang Wen, a professor and executive dean of the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies, Renmin University of China. So he's mainland China. He was basically saying that... Um, uh, actually, I'll just quote some of the article here. Some surveys show that 51% of young people in Taiwan like to use mainland apps such as TikTok and Red. They envy the mainland's high-speed rail system that can zip people across the country for business or travel or just for the weekend. They see new breathing space with the rapid rise in standards of living and the great potential for continued economic progress. He says that is why two of the three parties in Sunday's election made it clear they do not support Taiwan independence or even talking about reunification. And he says, it seems that the Chinese economy will surpass the United States around 2035. Dear listener, if you use purchasing power, purchasing power parity, China's yeah, already overtaken. They've already overtaken the US. Yep. And he says, in the future, the envy and worship young people in Taiwan have for the mainland will only strengthen... In the past, Taiwanese people have had a sense of superiority over their higher living standards. But now, 
the GDP of its West Coast neighbour, Fujian Province, exceeds Taiwan's. And he says Taiwan's standard of living was 10 times higher than Fujian's 30 years ago, but now many Taiwanese are reflecting on why their island is slipping as Fujian grows, even though they share a regional culture. This is my tip, Scott, in the long term, is just economically the Taiwanese will want to join China because their economy will be crushed by various forces. And if that that is something the Taiwanese people want to actually do, Mm. then they will accept one country, two systems. But they haven't shown a great deal of acceptance of that because they've seen how one country, two systems has played out for Hong Kong. Mm. You know, it's yeah, it'll take a while, but you know, I'm not saying this is going to happen next year, but it's it's this is a, a decades over the coming decades, over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Oh, yeah, which China can wait that out because they you know they, they could wait that out and all that sort of stuff, yeah. Wasn't Do I actually uh, see the Taiwanese people accepting that very gracefully and all that sort of stuff? No, but I could actually see it happening at some stage in the future. Wasn't it one of Mao's generals who was asked, "What did you think of? What do you think of what happened in the French Revolution?" And he said, "It's too early to say." I think it was one of Mao's generals. So. It really wouldn't surprise me because yeah. they do have that they do have that very long-term view of the world and yeah. they just think to themselves, you know, they honestly believe that their civilization has been there for thousands of years and all that type of thing. So mm. they honestly think that they are the longest-serving country in the world. Yeah. So Landon Hardbottom had made that comment about about the piss tape and, and Russia controlling yeah. Trump. And just looking at the chat, they're saying that Landon's comment didn't survive in YouTube. Didn't oh, it show up. Oh, really? It got, it got it, it showed up on our well. screen, but not on yeah. YouTube. So, fair uh, enough. I'm a bit worried that this, for the second time, Landon might cause a censorship <laughs> of one of our episodes. I might have to make this one a private one, just yeah. so I don't get censored by YouTube again. So, mm. yeah, because it was Landon who his joke about. Um, the laser beams on Shay that got us into trouble last time. Oh, that was um, that, that was Landon's fault again. So yeah, I, well, yeah, yeah. Anyway, just quickly back to China still um, and their economy and the Chinese car industry. John Pilger, recently deceased, he nailed a set of crucial reasons for the Western world maintaining such distorted, low success expectations of China. Pilger argued convincingly that the global West and its mainstream Western media unceasingly demonise Beijing because today China has matched America at its own great game of capitalism, and that is unforgivable. He says the same Western media has played a new yellow peril role uh, in turning the extraordinary industrious community that is the real China into a fantasy-based monster trying to take over the world. And... In less than a decade, the good China has been airbrushed and the bad China has replaced it. Scott, I keep recalling how Tony Abbott invited Xi Jinping and he spoke in the Australian Parliament and it was all happy days, we love China, how can we possibly make things even stronger? Julia Gillard had organised joint military exercises and then Trump comes along and says, China bad, China bad. And yeah, everybody and followed. Morrison, and Morrison followed and all that sort of stuff. And here we are. 
That's that's where it's, we're at. And in that time, China did nothing. Nothing. Well, that's true. They haven't done anything. Yeah. You know? Except they did fly very closely to Taiwan and that sort of stuff. They have it forced the Taiwanese to expend a hell of a lot of aviation fuel and that type of thing to keep it keep a check on their borders. Mm. They have also, you know, done live fire exercises very close to Taiwan. Mm. You know, it's one of those things. I do honestly believe that Taiwan is an independent country, though. Yeah. In the scheme of things, thinking Israel and Gaza, nothing. China's done nothing. Anyway. Yeah, I know. Fair enough. Still, still in the same article. China is now the world's biggest car exporter, electric, hybrid, and conventional combined. It's ahead of Japan and Germany as a car exporter. Five years ago, China only shipped 25% of Japanese automotive exports. And now it's the world's largest, ahead of Japan and Germany. Chinese maker BYD, Build Your Dreams, is now outselling Tesla globally with pure battery cars. So, huge success story. Yeah, and actually, Deep Throat has just bought a BYD. Did he? Yes. Ah, was he happy with it? He was happy with it when he he sent me an email about it. Okay, there you go. It's one of those things, I just think to myself that eventually we're going to have, well, if we can't get hydrogen up and that sort of stuff, this country will have long, what's the word I'm groping for? Long distance EVs. Mm. You know, we will actually get there one day. It's going to take a little bit of time, but we'll get there one day. Or we could end up with hydrogen vehicles. I don't Mm. know. But the internal combustion engine has got a lifespan on it. Mm. Except for dickheads like me, they've got a 1969 MGB in their garage. Right. You know? A 1969? Yeah, 1969 MGB. Wow. Mm. Okay. Just briefly... You know how we had apparently participated in the bombing of Yemen? Yeah. And the way we found out about it, dear listener, is the Americans told us. Mm. Our own government didn't tell us that it was involved in the background in assistance with the US bombing Yemen. We had to find out from the Americans. So... As Anne Pavitt says in the John Menadue blog, is this a constitutional crisis? On Friday, 12th of January 2024, a USA official spokesman announced that Australia was to provide a support role for the UK and USA troops who were about to attack Yemen. No announcement had been made to this effect by the Australian government. The Australian people had to wait for the next day to know definitely if, in fact, such a decision had been made. How is it possible for the USA spokesperson to announce an Australian policy decision on going to war against another sovereign state, no less, before it had been declared by the Australian government? Uh, She's got a point there. Yeah. You know, I think our government should have actually come forward and actually said, look, Australia is providing a support role right now for the UK and the US. You it's know, just so commonplace to bomb somebody. Oh, it's yeah. one of oh. those things I just think to myself that I agree with you that, the, you know, the war powers and that sort of stuff should be actually a whole, should involve the entire parliament, both houses, mm. not mm. just the cabinet. 
Yeah. You know, so you'd actually have a debate about it in, in Parliament, which the Greens would be the only ones that would be opposed to it. And, you know, but at least it would be out there and that sort of stuff. You'd have some argument before you actually declared it. Yes. Yeah. So um, it's, it's extraordinary. I mean, we should bring both Houses of Parliament together before we assist before we bomb any other country or assist mm. our allies in bombing another country, mm. you would think it's such a serious thing that we could at least gather together. I mean, Scott, they're bringing together the Labor caucus. It's all gathering in Parliament, even though Parliament's not sitting, to discuss the sort of cost of living crisis. Mm. We can do that, but we can't bring everyone together to talk about whether we're going to bomb another country or not. Yeah, exactly. It's like those, you know, when the cabinet, when the cabinet papers were declassified and that sort of stuff, because they were twenty mm. years old. That was over John Howard's decision to, and it was mm. basically John Howard's decision to invade Iraq. Yes. You know, he, he it was him and Peter Costello and a few others and that sort of stuff that were involved in a very, well, not an informal chat because it was actually minuted, mm. and they just said, "Well, we're going to go and do it." I just thought yeah. to myself, you know, there was never any real discussion of that. You know, there was there was probably an argument for getting involved with the intelligence that they had had been provided to us, which has proven since then to be false. Mm. But there was an argument that we should be involved, but that was an argument that they should have been prepared to prosecute publicly, but they weren't. Mm. Simon Crean was prepared to say he was the Labor leader. He was the, the leader of the opposition. He, he said that I support you, but I don't support you going. Mm. Mm. So good on him. Ah, mm. oh, Scott, I got some other stuff there, but I reckon that's an hour, and I'm trying to keep it to an hour. These podcasts now, so we can put some more Yemen stuff on the back burner until next week. I think Joe's back next week, dear listener. Mm. Yeah, our temporary UK correspondent will be back. Yeah, if you've got any interesting articles or things going on, send them to me, and they might make it on the podcast. And if the people in the chat room, thanks for your contribution. I, I think this episode I'm going to, I think I'm going to make it private or something just so that YouTube doesn't give me another censorship tap on the shoulder. <laughs> It'd be a real shame to lose it. So, yeah, exactly. I, think, I think I will delete it just for that reason. Audio only. All righty. Thanks for listening, dear listener. We'll be back next week. Bye for now. And thanks very much for tuning in. Bye now.